Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Hey, a big thanks to all of our fan members. We're grateful for the Founders Alliance membership and those of you who are supporting us, who have joined us, linked arms with us as we labor on, seeking to build and to fight. Uh, this particular podcast we are excited about, have been excited about for some time, because we have Dr. Craig A. Carter with us on the line. Um, Dr. Carter has published uh, more than just this book, but we are going to be talking about his book, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. Um, Dr. Carter uh, hails from Toronto, and he is professor of theology at Tyndale University College and Seminary. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you're welcome, and I, uh, I should, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, it's actually, as of about two weeks ago, now it's called Tyndale University, so we just got permission to make that name change, so that's Wonderful. what it is. Very good. Hey, tell us what the weather's like in Toronto today. Uh, it's cold, and there's snow on the ground, and uh, I'm not particularly happy about that. <laughs> oh, man. We won't tell you about the weather in southwest Florida, then. We, we weep with those who weep, Dr. Carter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a burden. I don't know how you get called to southwest Florida. <laughs> somebody's got to do it. Yeah, somebody's got to figure that out. <laughs> so, Dr. Carter, why don't you give us just a, a couple minutes on your background? How'd you end up where you are now? And tell us a little bit about your church. Well, I'm, uh, I'm actually a theologian in residence at Western Heights Baptist Church here in Ajax, Ontario, which is just the next little community. We, um, uh, theologian in residence, what's that? Well, I'm, I'm on the staff of the church. We have about 500 people on a Sunday morning. We have four pastors, three part-time. And uh, my job is um, to be um, kind of watching over the church theologically and to, uh, uh, I teach a Sunday school class, <clears throat> just started yesterday, a series on the Psalms. We're going to go all the way through the entire 150 Psalms, and uh, one Psalm at a time, looking at how the Psalm, how we, how to see Christ in the Psalms. That's mm-hmm. the that's the point. And this is going to be a podcast, actually, on the Gospel Coalition of Canada website, starting in May. Every two weeks, there'll be uh, a, uh, a podcast and a blog going with it. So that's the kind of thing that I do. I, I buy books for the church library. I go out for coffee with people and t- answer theological questions. I, I preach on a regular basis every couple months or so. I, I, um, you know, I was a pastor for seven years uh, after seminary, and uh, two small Baptist churches uh, in uh, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Um, and then I, uh, well, well, two small ones in PEI, and then a, a larger one in. in in New Brunswick. And then I uh, went back to do my PhD under John Webster at the University of Toronto School of Theology. And uh, I uh, worked on BART and Yoder. And uh, then after my after that, I ended up at Tyndale in 2000 teaching. First, I was dean and uh, helping move toward university status. And then I, then I, for the last 15 years, been teaching full-time theology and so I teach Isaiah, and I teach Doctrine of God, Doctrine of Christ, Introduction to Theology, a uh, course on marriage, a few other things, Augustine. Um, good. So, so. And, uh, yeah, and so I teach there, and, and but, but, in, but for the last 13 years, I've also been on staff at, at, at the church part-time, so I really find it important to, to try to do theology 
both in the academy and in the in the local church, and to be responsible to a local church. And I think that my this book actually uh, couldn't have been written if it hadn't have been uh, with one foot in each. Um, I really the thesis of the book comes down to the church does better job of interpreting the Bible, uh, all things considered, looking at the whole of, tradi- of the Western tradition. Than the uh, than the modern academy does, mm. and that's not a hard that's a hard word for the modern academy to hear, and uh, and if you are too beholden to the academy, too immersed in it, it's hard to see that, and that's where the local church gives you a different perspective, and it allows you to see the the weaknesses in the academy and and the interpretation of scripture that comes out of that, and uh, so I think that's what makes the book uh, uh, if it has any any contribution, that's where it is. Do you say elite elitist? Eliteness. Eliteness. Yeah, you're hitting on something solid there. Let me just read from your acknowledgement section. Uh, and this, I've got this starred exclamation points, yes, underlined. It says, keeping one foot in the academy and one foot in the local church has forced me to think on multiple levels at all times and has kept me grounded in reality while thinking on a philosophical and theological level. This is how theology has been done for most of church history and how it should be done today. The isolated intellectual in the ivory tower is simply out of touch and crippled by the lack of feedback necessary for doing good theology. Mm. I think that is a powerful statement and uh, agree with you wholeheartedly tell tell us were you raised in the baptist tradition and uh, did you did you come to christ early yes actually there's a southern baptist connection even is Um, that right i uh my family was born in moncton new brunswick and we were we were i was there till grade one and my father decided to move to stephenville newfoundland uh, to work as a contractor for the American Air Force Base there, uh, which was there since World War II. It, you know, it ended up closing a few years after we moved there, which which made which was too bad. But he was he was doing well. But there was a there was a Stephenville's this little tiny community in uh, in, in in Newfoundland, and um, there, there. But the Air Force Base was the the whole economy of the area, and when it closed, it was devastating. But the there were enough. American uh, personnel on the base that there was a, a little church. Now, the church was actually technically started by the uh, Atlantic Baptist Convention, the local Baptist group here in, in the Maritimes, but um, 90% of the people in the church were Southern Baptists. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was the church where I was saved, and, and I, I went forward um, at the age of eight and was baptized uh, there and uh, accepted Christ. I uh, and so I was my my initial first four or five years of being three or four years of being a Christian was was uh, formed actually in what was in effect the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist Church, a very typical Southern Baptist Church that gave an invitation morning Sunday morning Sunday night invitation every service that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and so then I, I uh, we our family moved back to Moncton after that, and I was uh, involved in the Baptist denomination all through growing up and everything, and uh, went to a Baptist uh, college for the first two years, and then uh, then went to a secular university to finish a degree in philosophy, and then I then I went to seminary at Acadia, uh, the Baptist seminary in, in Nova Scotia, and then was a pastor for seven years in that denomination before coming to Toronto and then ending up at Tyndale eventually. Well, actually, Wonderful. there's a little bit more in the middle there, but, but yeah. that's the essence of it. 
Well, that's great. One, one final question before we jump into your book. And uh, the church you're serving now, is that a confessional church? What, what would be the uh, theological uh, perspective of that congregation? Well, yeah, I, I'd have to explain Canadian church history a little bit because uh, there's no, there, there is a Southern Baptist uh, entity in, in Canada, but it's very small. Mm-hmm. The, the group that I'm part of is the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches of Canada. I uh, used to be part of what was called the convention, which is the more liberal group. Uh, just in rough terms, the convention is more like American Baptist than the fellowships, more like Southern Baptist. But okay. both are Canadian and and with our own history and everything. But basically, our church is uh, it it it's sort of uh, it would it would be it would be reformed. Um, it's confessional in the sense that we have a, a modern statement of faith. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a uh, we don't we don't explicitly affirm Second London Confession. Mm-hmm. Although um, you know, I, I although we we one of the tasks I I, I have had as a theologian residence was to um, to uh, create a catechism for the church that we call the Westney Catechism, and I wrote a book that expounds that Westney Catechism. And we now make that book required reading for anybody who wants to join the church. So there's a new members class, and they read the book and discuss it in the class, and it's led by a deacon. And and uh, so we're we're confessionalist, mm-hmm. confessionalish, maybe you can yeah. say, uh, yeah. getting getting there. Maybe not all, not not perfect, but yeah. but certainly uh, certainly I think uh, the church is conservative evangelical with a high view of scripture. And one thing about our church that is extremely unusual is that uh, you've heard of King James-only churches? Well, we're more or less an ESV-only church. Uh, <laughs> and and we, uh, we we sell, my wife actually helps people purchase uh, the, the best ESV study Bible for them, and we've actually sold about 150 ESV study Bibles in our church. How about and that? the people in our church are really into Bible study. Uh, well, Dr. Carter, I, let's dive in here. i got a few questions for you. I, I, I'll tell you, when yeah. I read your book, it was connecting on a lot of... Um, on a lot of levels to things that we're concerned about. We've created a, a, um, a synodoc called by what standard where we're addressing a, a dangerous philosophy as we see it and how it's, uh, how it's manifesting itself in the realm of ethics and, or social justice. And then I've read Dolezal, you cite Dolezal, and I think he's really getting into the same kind of errors that are happening on the doctrine of God. So I, I kind of categorize Dolezal's doctrine of God. Uh, by what standard we're addressing the issues of the ethics of this false uh, ideology. And then when your book came, I said, wow, Dr. Carter's doing the same thing on the on the level of hermeneutics. At least so th- those are the the lines that I see. So uh, we want to spend most of the time talking about a theo- your theology of scripture language in your book, and then the, maybe the theological metaphysics of the great tradition. But let's start with the toward the theology of scripture. You say on page 32, the act of reading a biblical text is not a secular act. It actually is a divine human encounter. Can you just explain that to us in more detail? Uh, yes. So, um, actually, you may not be aware that my next book is in press, and it's going to be called Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, mm. and it will be on the doctrine of God. So that's coming uh, in uh, April of 21 with Baker Academic as well. So uh, I do resonate with this list of concerns. So what does it mean for it to be a secular act? Well, I think that in, in modernity, um, the uh, there has been a tendency to... to uh, say we should read the Bible like any other book, meaning 
that we should read the Bible out of a philosophical naturalist worldview. And I think that um, uh, this has been a, a kind of a, a central plank of Enlightenment hermeneutics. The, the whole idea of Enlightenment hermeneutics is to read the book, read the Bible, to understand its historical meaning which is fine from a Christian perspective on one level, because, of course, we, we believe that the Bible deals with history and that the, the mighty acts of God in history, the, the Exodus and the, the, the coming of Christ and the resurrection, all that is historical. But the problem is that the, the, there is a warped understanding of history. And just at the same time as the Enlightenment was pushing for the new historic, uh, historical uh, criticism of the Bible— the definition of history was being redefined from, um, instead of history being a, an interpretation of past events, it becomes an interpretation of past events assuming there is no such thing as the supernatural or miracles. Mm-hmm. Well, it, that limited definition of history then becomes the way, becomes the, the, prim, the premise or the presupposition behind saying we need to do historical interpretation. And so, actually, it's not honest. It's really not saying we should do historical interpretation. Actually, everybody agrees on that. The Calvin, the Fathers, uh, Thomas Aquinas, we all agree that we need to interpret the Bible historically in a sense, just not in the Enlightenment sense, because the Enlightenment sense means that the histori- to interpret it historically means to interpret it naturalistically. And that's where I think the uh, hermeneutics went off the rails in the modern period. You know, pastorally on the ground, the the idea, just the way you expressed it here, that it is a divine human, I think you call it a divine human encounter, very practically for people. That is, I mean, that's why we pray that the Spirit would attend the Word when we when it's preached on Sunday. That's why we say we should know that we're depending upon the Spirit because we are hearing the very Word of God when we are reading the Scripture or meditating upon the Scripture. And practically in people's lives, if that idea is lost, you can see them just coming to the book, coming to the Bible as if it is just a common book and thinking, well, this is just a secular act. I'm just kind of reading it. And, and I, a lot of the as this philosophy is coming in, a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't do that. You know, I, I know that it's the word of God, but, but it's just, we're losing the emphasis on this is the word of God. And God has given us a spirit that we can understand the things that have been revealed to us um, by him. So that's a fascinating right. point. Just one, just one more thing to add to that. And that is that if it is a, if it is revelation, then it tells us things that we couldn't know otherwise about the very being and essence of God. And that is what, that is why reading the Bible is different from reading any other book. There is a, there, um, it's the content that is communicated as well. The, the, the Bible actually reveals truth that we wouldn't otherwise know about, say, the creation of the world, for example. The fact that the world is created out of nothing at a point in time by God. Can't know that by reason. Um, but you can know it from Revelation. And so the Bible is that kind of book. And so when you, the liberal view of the Bible is that it's just telling us human thoughts about God. It's the, the human thoughts about God in the 6th century B.C. or the 14th century B.C. or, or the 1st century A.D. But it's, it's what the, it's, the historical view tends to be reduced to just saying what those people believed about God at that time in history, whereas the the Christian understanding of reading the Bible is that God has inspired it in such a way that that we can actually access truth about who God really is and what He has done through reading the Bible. 
Dr. Carter, one of the points that we've tried to come back to time and time again, and I've phrased it like this, is that the, the most important verse in all the Bibles, Genesis 1-1, and it seems as if we approach the Bible forgetting that the Bible is God's word, that there is a God who's created everything, and so he is the creator, he's above us, and we are his creatures. Is that getting at the same point that you're talking about? Well, it is. Uh, I mean, the, the doctrine of creation is foundational to the Bible, for sure. Um, and many of the, when we start talking about theological metaphysics, this comes to the fore. The theological metaphysics of Nicaea, mm. um, one of the central planks or central symbols or central ideas in that is creation ex nihilo. This was, uh, this was something that was absolutely foundational for the 4th century fathers, and when you have creation ex nihilo, you cannot have philosophical naturalism. These two things cannot coexist. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that that's why it's so foundational. So, yes, what you said there, even as you said, you know, Revelation's revealing things to us that we could not know otherwise. I, I know, having read your book, that this theological metaphysics is in the background there. And I don't know, have you, before we get into it, have you ever um, engaged at all with any of Peter Jones's stuff on oneism and twoism? No, I haven't. Sorry. It's just a very, it's kind of like a, a simple way of articulating what I feel like you have been articulating as well. But why don't you talk to us about this theological metaphysics on page 63. You say, uh, when you're describing what you mean by theological metaphysics, you say it's the account of the ontological nature of reality that emerges from the theological descriptions of God and the world found in the Bible. So what is theological metaphysics and why is it important? I mean, why would you have a whole chapter devoted to this? Um, what's going on with it? Well, the, the reason there's a chapter on it is because um, we have a situation where when we go to interpret the Bible, we are standing in a tradition that goes back 2,000 years. And we're going back to the apostles and the apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament in the light of Christ. And there has been a fundamental disturbance in that tradition in the Enlightenment that has changed some of the basic assumptions that people uh, naturally bring to the process of reading the Bible. And, and so this chapter is trying to explain where that disturbance has occurred and what it means and what the implications of it are. And the, the way that I've chosen to explain it is to say that um, all of the the metaphysical assumptions uh, of the great tradition could be uh, and could be summed up in what I call Christian Platonism, which has turned out to be a pretty controversial <laughs> phrase. A lot of people don't like Platonism, uh, but but really, the, the label is not as important as the substance. It is that there is a theological metaphysics that comes out of Nicaea that is accepted all the way through the tradition and then disturbed in the Enlightenment and needs to be recovered today. So. Let me uh, let me just try to uh, to to explain that. I understand theology to be a, like a three legged stool. So you have exegesis, doctrine, and metaphysics. So here's how it works: you you go to the Bible, you do your exegesis, you you study a passage, then you study another passage, and you build up a, a body of exegetical results. And as you do, some some of the exegetical results begin to coalesce into doctrine. So you begin to develop the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of of, of the Church, etc. And then you you begin to, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, you know, the what we must believe consists of that which is derived from Scripture by exegesis, 
which I believe to be saying the same thing as Scripture says in other words. That's exegesis. And what may be logically deduced from that exegesis. So you make this, this step of, so you've got a bunch of doctrines. Now you make some logical deductions from those doctrines, and um, you come up with some metaphysical statements that describe the relationship of God to the world. And so now you have some metaphysical uh, uh, doctrines, which, which are going to land you in some degree of conflict with modernity, because modernity has rejected the, the doctrines out of which those metaphysics came. But uh, you then take the metaphysical doctrines, you go back and you do exegesis again, because you don't just do exegesis once. You, you do what I call a second exegesis. And then that, at that point, you are looking at a text again, and you're asking yourself, now, I'm looking at it with this metaphysical assumption. Do I think that this metaphysical assumption holds up, or do I need to revise it in the light of what the text is saying? Or can I see a deeper meaning in the text than I saw the first time around, because I'm now coming with this metaphysical assumption? And so that process leads to a process of refinement, and uh, and change, but but you you always keep going around that. There's a spiral where mm-hmm. there's exegesis to doctrine to metaphysics, and then metaphysics becomes the presupposition for further uh, exegesis. And this is the solution to the big problem. The big problem of hermeneutics is this: when you come to the Bible, you always bring your your presuppositions with you. When you read the text, you're always using presuppositions. The problem is. If you and if you deny that you're using that presuppositions, all that means is you're going to be using unexamined uh, ones uncritically that you've picked up from the culture around you. But you're always going to be using presuppositions. But how do you how? But you want your presuppositions to come out of the Bible. But how can they come out of the Bible when you haven't even done the exegesis first? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, there's a role here for creeds and confessions, and this is partly the answer to the to the solution to the problem. But um, You've got to you've got to become convinced yourself as you do theology that the creeds and confessions are true, and the way you do that is by exegesis, doctrine, metaphysics, more exegesis, more refinement of doctrine, refinement of exegesis, until the goal is that eventually, when you go to do your next sermon or your next bit of exegesis, that you are approaching the Bible with as close to the same metaphysical framework or worldview or whatever you want to call it as the Bible itself has. That's the goal. So, and uh, yeah, that's, we've that, forgotten the goal. Now that's a great explanation. It raises, uh, there's two questions I want to uh, uh, put to you. First, when you came up with Christian Platonism, did you not think that would be controversial? Well, actually, you know, the, the way that I came to uh, to uh, change my theology from Barkianism, leaning toward Anabaptism, to a more historic confessional orthodoxy, was by reading the Church Fathers. Mm-hmm. And when you study patristics, that phrase is just a common phrase. It's a just it, it's not it's not meant to be provocative. It's just a descriptive phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you're just talking about the Christian Platonism and and how Christian Platonism of Augustine became an alternative to the Neoplatonism of Plotinus and and how Christian Platonism won out and shaped the Middle Ages and so on. And it's not meant to be, um, but I, I, I have a theory, and that is that that you take a writer like N.T. Wright, the way he uses the word Platonism, he, it's practically a synonym for Gnosticism. Mm. Uh, Platonism is body-hating, 
uh, you know, it's anti-resurrection of the body, it's anti-basic Christian doctrines, anti-creation. Well, that's not Christian Platonism historically, that's not what it has been at all. But I think my theory is that that um, the word Platonism is so hated in the modern world precisely because it is the main alternative in the ancient world to naturalism. Uh, there's a very good uh, historian of Greek philosophy by the name of Lloyd Gerson. He teaches at the University of Toronto, and he's written a trilogy of books on this. Uh, he's a brilliant historian of Greek philosophy, and he argues that that in the ancient world, there are two major alternatives. There are a series of philosophical views that add up to naturalism. There's the Democritus and his materialism. There's Lucretius and his atheism. There's Epicureanism. And they're all basically naturalistic. Whereas on the other side, the main tradition of Greek philosophy is Platonist. And by Platonist, he defines what he means and explains it. And he said, basically, it's Platonism versus naturalism. Mm. And that explains why the, why the Church Fathers uh, just didn't have, didn't have to debate very long. I mean, it would be like saying, you know, should, should we Christians today align ourselves with Darwin and Richard Dawkins, or should we align ourselves with, with a philosophy that is uh, a, a rea- recognizing the reality of a spiritual realm beyond the physical? Yeah, well, it's just no good for us. So... Makes- so yeah, so I mean, if you if you look at it from the ancient point of view, it's a lot less controversial. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, provocative enough that it's, it does raise people's uh, ire, but also their questions to to look into it. Uh, when I was hearing about your book and listening to Rich Barcellus talk about it, um, and that phrase came up, I'm thinking, what in the world, you know? And and yet, reading your book, listening to you talk about it now, the the question that people seem to have, or the way that that I've heard people dismiss it is man you're going to superimpose that metaphysic on the scripture from the get-go then you, you there's no way you're going to come out right and yet as you explain in your uh, first chapter that i think it's the first maybe it's the third chapter that this is that ongoing responsibility of exegesis and working out doctrine that will also shape the metaphysics and the, you just keep doing that this isn't a finished product and that nobody escapes it you can't you can't approach scripture without a metaphysic because everybody has one the question is are we going to try to align our metaphysical understanding of the world with the bible more and more would that be fair that's right that, that's exactly right and i think the uh, i think that the uh, the opposition to the the metaphysics that i articulated in the book um, there is a kind. Of, there, there's two different kinds. We have to be careful not to confuse them. There are people who are worried about imposing a non-Christian philosophical view on the Bible, and that's a legitimate concern, and we can talk that through. But I think there are also other people who who just hate Platonism because they mm. they associate it with the kind of supernaturalism that Christianity holds to, and what they want is a completely um, they're, they're, they're caught up in scientism. They want to be, they want a completely materialistic worldview. So those are a different kind of people, and those people, uh, we're not going to reach any accommodation with those people. They're, they're, the differences go all the way down. That's, that's what I, that's very helpful, because as I read your book, that was my concern, and I think that some of it's arising out of the social justice stuff that we're facing and understanding even the Frankfurt School and um, and where this critical theory stuff came from, and it appears to me it's coming from just a materialistic understanding of the world, and therefore this is the ethical outworking of that uh, philosophy, of that way of thinking about the well, world. Well, and 
Well, yes, I agree, and and it's and you see it in hermeneutics. I mean, the the the, the long term fruit of adopting a philosophical naturalist view of the world is the, uh, the is that I see a logical development from the Enlightenment all the way to the, the most extreme postmodernists uh, today. Uh, when you take people like Derrida and and uh, Foucault, uh, what they say is that the that all this talk about goodness and truth and beauty is just a mask for power games. Mm-hmm. Everything everything is basically reduced to power struggles, and the the, the world is characterized it's a, it's a, as a, a zero sum game, and you divide the world into groups that compete for power. And the competition for power is the final meaning of everything, including the reading of the Bible. And so if you read the Bible in, in a certain way, the, the reading of the Bible, hermeneutics, becomes a battleground where competing groups struggle for power. And so uh, there's no question of this reading being true and that reading being false. It's just that this reading enables this group to attain power. That reading enables another group to, to attain power. This is um, this is completely antithetical to the way that Christians have read the Bible. But the whole point of of the, the Christian tradition, the whole idea of orthodoxy, the whole idea of a confessional Christianity, is based on the idea that there is truth, that there there, there is truth in the world to be discovered. Uh, there's a theological realism here, you know, that, that the world is actually made a certain way and operates according to certain laws, and discovery of those laws leads you, puts you in touch with reality. Well, that whole assumption is uh, is denied in postmodernism. And, and basically, the, the big problem is, it's not that the postmodernists just need to tone it down or become more civilized or become more uh, less aggressive or, or less committed to violence, and we should just become nicer to each other. The, the problem is that, that um, when you deny the existence of God and the existence of universals and the existence of truth, then uh, you inevitably create a situation where, in which there can be nothing but a struggle for power. Mm. That is the basic problem. So until we repent of the idea as a society uh, of that that the world, until the West repents of its naturalism, there simply is no way for the future to be anything but a power structure. So Nietzsche's right. Yes, that's that's what I've been trying, Doctor Carter. You are articulating exactly what I've been trying to say for a while now, and I, it's it's related to your understanding of this this of modernity. Even on page eighty five, where you say modernity is a cultural pathology caused by the breakdown of the great tradition and the rise of neo paganism in Western civilization. You know that uh, paganism, neo paganism, has been working its way into even my sermons. I've addressed it a few times. Um, and I mentioned this, Peter Jones, he has addressed this as well. One of, so one of the things we've been trying to do, let me tell you, let me explain some of my thoughts and you tell me if, if you see any connections to what you've, what you're talking about here, Dr. Carter, we, our film is called by what standard. It's mainly in the realm of epistemology. We keep trying to say, Hey, everybody pay attention to the Bible um, when it comes to issues of justice and all of this. And then I, I'm, I'm concerned that what might be happening to some in the church is they go, well, Hey, we love the Bible. But they're looking at the Bible through this um, kind of through modernity, through the lenses of modernity, or through an, uh, through kind of like a neo pagan uh, philosophy. They've lost. We've lost the transcendence of God and understanding that 
um, that this word comes to us from the God who is not like us, who is set apart from us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so you can, if if you if you've been duped by the philosophy of of of, of naturalism, and then you say, and, but but I but I'm still holding on to the Bible. But the Bible is just all a part of this kind of natural, materialistic, the God that you are now worshiping is actually a part of the system rather than transcendent and set apart from the system. Um, then you're getting duped even further and further. You're reading, you're reading that scripture through a grid, through a metaphysic. Um, that is not true. That's not faithful. And therefore, you're seeing things that are not really there and you're missing the things that really are there. Does any of that connect to what you're doing? Make sense? Uh, yes, um, I believe that uh, that all of the history of modern philosophy. Well, one of the places where this began for me was in reading Lewis Ayres' *Nicaea and Its Legacy*, and in his opening and closing chapters in that book, he does something that many patristic scholars don't ever get around to doing, but which I really admire. He he makes connections between. See what he's doing is he's trying to recover the the proper a proper description of pro-Nicene theology in the fourth century between 385 and 381. He's trying to describe that theology and uh, overcome some of the wrong interpretations that have been floating around, like the one from John Zizulis that says that there's a basic difference between the Eastern and the Western, whereas that Augustine begins with the one and he's a mere monotheist and the Cappadocians are the real Trinitarians. Well, Ayers is trying to overcome that. But he also takes the time to say, to relate the, uh, the history of the 4th century to the modern so-called Trinitarian revival of the 20th century. And he says that the 20th century, basically, uh, the whole thing that starts with Bark and Rahner, and you see it going through Pannenberg and Moltmann and Voss and, and our, a whole bunch of the social Trinitarians and Zizioulis, the, the whole trend that moves through the 20th century that is, that is identified as the Trinitarian Revival. Um, basically, Ayers says, all of this is out of touch with Nicaea. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even disagree with Nicaea because it's so far from understanding Nicaea. <laughs> and uh, this is kind of shocking. This was shocking to me when I read this. And, and I, but I, I was totally convinced in my reading in Patristics that, that um, the 20th century was it was completely wrong in, in saying that this was a revival of Nicene Trinitarianism. It just isn't. And so uh, then then a, a really good book came along, Stephen Holmes' book, The Quest for the Trinity, and I'd really encourage everyone to read that. That's a very accessible uh, book, but it explains how the Trinitarian revival of the 20th century is not Nicene. And, and, and the way that the, the real problem, the root of the problem here, is that after Kant, you have everything that happens in philosophy is some form of Kantian constructionism, constructivism, uh, where basically the mind is cut off from knowing the thing in itself. So whereas it, for Plato, the way you know something is to know what its essence. If you want to know what a dog is, you know what the essence of a dog is. If you, once you know the essence of something, you can predict its behavior because you know what it is. Kant said you can't know the thing in itself. That means you cannot know natures. So that means that all you can all you can do is describe the world using a combination of your sense that, sense experience and the categories of the understanding that are in your mind. So you are in effect creating a worldview or a vision uh, out of the sense experience and the categories of your understanding. But 
that doesn't mean that your perception of the world, as you articulate it, um, is actually connected to the reality of the things in themselves and their natures in the world. Well, all philosophy just accepts Kant as gospel truth from then on. Everything from Hegel on, and this is why the, the shadow of Hegel is so it looms so large over 20th century theology, because Hegel is reconceiving of God as basically the, the engine of history. He's the force that's driving history forward. He's the Geist. And Geist is not a transcendent creator mm. above the world that brought it into being and is providentially guiding it to its conclusion in Christ. No, Geist is a part of the world. It's closer to, uh, it's not dependent on, but it's similar to the ancient Stoic idea of the Logos as the, the rational principle at the heart of reality. But it's more like the soul of the world. But, it, but, but, the, but the key point is, just as you said, the, the, the concept of God that's driving this, and, and by the way, this whole Hegelian idea is behind the 20th century revival, and this is why it's not Nicene at all. It's, it's, it's the, the basic idea of God is that God is an aspect of, or a part of, mm-hmm. or the heart of, uh, rea- of the physical cosmos that we inhabit. God is not the transcendent creator. So, so all of the 20th century theology is basically reconceiving God within the context of a metaphysics in which there is no real transcendent. There, there is no real creation ex nihilo, and this is why creation of Snehalo is under such attack in modern biblical studies today. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so I, I'm basically agreeing with you. I'm saying that, that the problem of modernity is that modernity is engaged in reconceptualizing God within the constraints of philosophical naturalism and Kantian constructivism, and that as long as we're doing that, we can debate the details endlessly, but we're never, never going to get close to, the, to historic Christian orthodoxy. And yeah. I think this is at the root of what Ayers is talking about in that modern theology is just not even Nicene enough to deny the Trinity, let alone affirm it. Yeah, and so <clears throat> it's like we're standing on the wrong foundation trying to debate uh, aspects of the house that we think exists but in reality exists on a completely different foundation. That's right. We're, we're, it's like we have a house that has a rotten foundation that's no good, and we're rearranging the positioning <laughs> of the window. So, um, Dr. Carter, you, you've written this book, and you identify modernity, and you speak of neo-paganism. For like our listeners, pastors out there, it, you obviously you, you're, you're contrasting the, the great tradition with modernity, I'm assuming that you see, and you're an outsider as far as we're, we've got American Christianity here, you're up there in Toronto, when you're looking over here at America. Although Toronto is in America, you know. Oh, yeah? North America doesn't yeah, stop well, at the border. Well, sorry, yeah, you know, these United States. <laughs> Toronto, Toronto thinks it's the middle of the, the center of the universe. So, <laughs> so a, a, as you assess these United States, um, and you... If, help us understand that modernity really is a threat, right? Like we just had a resolution that said we're going to use critical theory, this Hegelian dialectic whole idea, everything as a tool to analyze the the nature of things, the social dynamics, and and uh, we didn't say this explicitly, but of course that would lead eventually to interpreting scripture that way. You've written this book on hermeneutics that's saying no, no, no. There's a better, there's a better um, hermeneutic, there's a better way in modernity or neo paganism. Uh, is rampant in Western civilization. 
civilization or, or a rising in Western civilization is a real threat to coming into the church. Help pastors understand that that's really the case. How would you how would you help us see it? Well, it's a huge topic. It's one that I'm actually intensely interested in. Um, uh, and, and at some point, I think I need to write another book on metaphysics. But, okay, when it comes to the, the question of critical theory, um, I confess that I do not understand the statement that we're just going to use it as an analytical tool. Amen. If it's a good analytical tool, it must be based on a good theory. Because you think about a scientific theory. If you have a theory about how elements in the in, in, in natural science interact, and you say, well, I think the law should be expressed this way mathematically, you then devise an experiment to test the, uh, the theory. You, you, you do an experiment to, to use your, you actually engage the, the material reality, and you set up an experiment, you predict results, and if the results are in accordance with, if you correctly predict the results in accordance with your theory, that shows that your theory is an accurate description of the reality. So the so then you can take that theory and you can you know, make an airplane that flies and doesn't crash, or you can make a, 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 a computer that works. Uh, the theory has to be close enough to reality to be an accurate description of reality in order to be good as a theory for... Um, to, to form the basis for technology, because if your experiment showed that the theory was in accordance with physical reality, then your technology, based on that theory, will work. Like so, you've kind of got a double confirmation. You, you've got a, a, a material experiment that that showed the theory was right, and then you've got a, a a technological application that works that shows the theory is right. Well, if if the critical theory is correct then it will be a good analytical tool. That is, it will illumine the real nature of social interactions, and it will allow you to gain inside wisdom uh, into how those interactions take place and what they mean and, and, and what would be the implication of changing this factor or that factor. But on the other hand, if the theory is wrong, if the theory is not in touch with reality, then uh, using it as a critical analysis of the situation is going to lead you to misunderstand the situation, and it's going to lead to a different and wrong uh, interpretation of, of what we ought to do. So, so either so it seems to me that the usefulness of the of, of critical theory as a analytical tool depends completely on um, how true the theory is. And the way that we would interpret the theory, I think, is that we have to compare um, what the theory says about reality to uh, the biblical metaphysics that arises out of Scripture. So in, in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the word cleverly devised myth, myth, there is mythos, that's the, the Greek word for basically a story that uh, explains things. That's basically what a myth is. And the word um, that is translated in the ESV as cleverly devised, well, that's a word that comes from the verb sophizo, which is the verbal form of the Greek word sophia. So it's wisdom. And so these are myths that are supposedly able to make you wise. Now, Paul also uses the same verb 
in in Timothy, and uh, when he when he says the scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. So the, so something so so what Peter is saying is we are rejecting these myths, these um, accounts of the nature of reality that um, purport to tell us the way the world really is, but we're replacing them with um, the revelation that we got from Jesus Christ, which is contained in scriptures. And Paul is saying that the scriptures contain the, uh, the knowledge that you need in order to be, to be saved, to make you wise unto salvation. And I think that that's what I would what I would want to say to to Southern Baptists and other evangelicals is we have resources within the Christian tradition, within the Bible and Christian metaphysics, that give us a theory of how the world works and why why things are the way they are. And we have these resources theologically and scripturally that we can deploy to analyze the situation in the world and to figure out what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. We don't need cleverly devised myths. We don't need to to adopt a worldly theory to, to analyze these things. I think that the um, Marxism is based on the view, uh, it's based on rejecting Augustine and embracing Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's basically saying, look, the, the, our analysis is that the problem, the reason there's injustice, the reason there's there's hatred and bitterness in society. The reason that there's there are people who are oppressed and people who are are are, are not who are oppressors. The reason for that is Rousseau says the reason is that social structures are 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 wrong and need to be revised. But that basically people are good, and if you just change the structure, then everything will be fine. Augustine says, look, the structures can be bad and often are bad, but they're bad because the root of the problem is in the human heart, where the human heart is evil. And out of an evil heart comes an evil, an evilly structured society. Well, both of these can't be true. One, one, one is true and the other is false. Either, either the, the sinful uh, actions, that the racism that we see in the world, either it is rooted in the human heart and needs, and, and, the, and that solution, the only ultimate solution is the change of the human heart, or it's rooted in the structure of society, but it can't be both. I mean, it, I mean, it can be both in the Augustinian view, but in the Rousseauian view, it has to be just the structures. And and the problem with Marxism is its analysis is too su- superficial. It says the problem in society is that you've got power games between identity groups, and if we could just rearrange the power dynamics, then everything would be fine. And Christianity says no, it wouldn't be fine. Because the, the power dynamics would then rearrange themselves into the same, into the uh, into oppressive patterns all over again. As soon as you got straightened out, they would immediately go back into they'd be deformed again. Why? Because you haven't addressed the root of the problem, which is the human heart. Mm. Well, these are two different analyses of the world that are incompatible, and I just think the Christians should not lose their nerve and uh, and accept a worldly. Uh, analysis of the problem. If there's a message that the church has to the world, the message must be the real problem with the world is sin, and the real solution is the gospel of Amen. Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Carter, you just got my vote for SBC president. <laughs> I was going to ask, would, would you mind coming down south and running? 
yeah. Up in jail running against Big Al. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> well, Dr. Carter, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Sword and the Trial today. Folks, get this book, Interpreting the Scripture with the Great yeah. Tradition by Dr. Craig Carter. Think through these issues. Think through um, Christian metaphysics or theological metaphysics and the uh, danger of modernity and the rise of neo-paganism and consider how we should read the Word uh, in light of who God is, what He's done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We will look forward to your next book coming out, God willing, next spring, the spring of 21. Thanks again, Dr. Carter. Well, thanks a lot. Nice to chat with you guys.